Thank you. I am pleased to be here in uh, New Jersey. And, of course, uh, you always have to say that when you come into a new state. And I am really pleased because uh, we do have a lot of friends over here, and we hope to make more before we leave. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Now, the reason I do that is because with all of these idiotic, imbecilic name designations coming out of the woman's lib movement, like Mrs. and persons, well, I never know what to say anymore. And I want to make sure I have ladies and gentlemen in front of me when I'm speaking. And that's what you look like to me. Well, you're here tonight to hear me speak to the subject of the United Nations and why we should get out of it. What are my qualifications to speak on a subject like this? Well, unfortunately, uh, and maybe you could say fortunately, or I wouldn't be here tonight talking about it, I was once an employee of the United Nations. I was an actor stalling the virtues of that great last parliament of man, that organization that's going to make peace for all mankind. And, of course, I found out much too late that it certainly was not an organization for that purpose. So we're going to tell you something about why we should get out of the United Nations this evening. So when you talk about a subject like this, you should start at the beginning, shouldn't you? So I want to take you back a few years and give you a little background into how the United Nations really got its beginning. Now, some of you may remember, and uh, some of you uh, may have had to read it in your history books, but uh, you may recall that back in 1918, when that great war to end all wars was over and the world was made safe for democracy, you recall that? Well, that's when it all began, really. Now, 1918 was a very good year. To be more specific, November 11th, 1918, was a good moment in time, for that was the day the Kaiser was defeated. Now, to those younger people here in the audience this evening who might uh, not know who the Kaiser was, let me explain further. The Kaiser was the leader of Germany, who, along with a heavy push from certain world socialists like the Warburgs, led the German people into a war that, from the beginning, was doomed to end in ignoble defeat. November 11, 1918, was the date of the signing of the armistice, which ended the conflict that sacrificed millions of lives as a beginning step toward a new world order, Henry Kissinger's new world order. Yes, the great war to end all wars was over. The world had been saved for democracy. As Woodrow Wilson and his mentor, E. Mandel House, began phase two of the plan to bring American sovereignty to an end by using American prestige and power to influence the world that in order to have peace for all mankind, an organization had to be created that would keep the peace. Thus, the League of Nations was born, but just as surely was doomed to failure since Americans had more sense than their leaders. Now, with the help and leadership of a few good United States senators, the League died without American participation. America was safe from being drawn into an international alliance of megalomaniacs. What next? Now that the League was dead, how could America be controlled to further the aims of these would-be rulers? Phase three was begun shortly. In 1919, a group of men met in Paris, France, to set into motion a new leadership for America, which would be a shadow government to control the domestic and foreign policies of one nation, the one nation that stood in the way of the European kingmakers. Now, the Council on Foreign Relations became that new influence, founded by such men as John Foster Dulles, Alan Dulles, Bernard Baruch, Edward Mandelhaus, and others. In 1921, 
they began to roll with full speed toward the creation of another league which would be called the United Nations. But before that could be a reality, a need for peace in an already peaceful world had to be created. Plans were then made to develop that need. And in the late 1920s and early 30s, a new creature of death was designed, patented, and manufactured. His name was Adolf Hitler. His delvings into the occult science and powers of Satan and his hatred for the Jews was exactly what these insiders had been looking for. Now, because of the horrendous treatment imposed upon the defeated Germans by the Versailles Treaty at the close of World War I, the scene was set now for the coming prominence of the man Hitler. World War II was not far off. As Hitler harangued and argued for the needs of Germany and for its rightful place in history as the Aryan nation of superior beings who would rule the world for a thousand years as the Third Reich. Soon America was drawn into World War II by the same diabolical forces that had created World War I. Once again, the United States was led into a union with European and Asian nations which would reduce America's freedom to that of a dog on a leash. With the defeat of the Nazis and Japanese warlords in 1945, public opinion was molded by the media in such a successful way that little or no opposition was mounted against the specter of a United Nations. 1945 ended a war that shouldn't have been. Though it made America the most powerful country on the face of this earth, it was also a very bad year. For that was the year the United Nations was officially born in San Francisco, California. And that was a signal in Esperanto for the beginning of the end of America's sovereignty and the rise of communism all over the world. Now, during the past 30 years, the United Nations has been a dismal failure. It was not designed to keep the peace. One has only to read the United Nations Charter to uh, see this truth. Since its founding, 75 wars have been fought. Nation after nation has come under the communist yoke with millions of human beings being slaughtered as a result. And still, the apologists for the United Nations cry, give the United Nations more time. More time for what, I ask? More time to destroy the world. Regardless of those who say the United Nations has a peaceful purpose, we are faced with the ugly reality of quite a different picture. The world has been seeing more bloodshed since the United Nations founding than from all of the wars of the first 45 years of the 20th century, all of the 19th century, and probably before that. Of the 144 nations that comprise the United Nations, only a few are aligned with the United States. The communist bloc controls the majority, and with Red China now occupying a place on the Security Council, a seat once held by the Free Chinese Republic of Taiwan, it should be very clear, even to the numbest of our citizens, that the time has come for the United States to get out of the United Nations, and the United Nations out of the United States. Now this slogan, to get us out, was coined by the John Birch Society. It now seems to be bearing fruit, as millions of signatures on petitions have been delivered to every member of our Congress, and more millions are on the way. To give you a breakdown of that, in July of 1975, John McManus, our public relations director in Belmont, Massachusetts, at the Society's headquarters, delivered personally to every member of Congress in Washington 267,000 petitions to get us out of the United Nations, containing 1,335,000 signatures. And then again in October of 1975, 
Another 537,000 petitions were delivered with 2,685,000 signatures for a total petition deliverance of 804,000 and signatures of 4,020,000 signatures. And that is just the beginning. They are coming in by the thousands with millions of signatures on them. Now, the mood of Americans is changing. The recent anti-Zionism vote in the General Assembly has moved the Jewish population into the fight against continuance of this uncivilized body of international monopolists. The groundswell of opinion to get us out is really on the rise. Now, have you seen those blue and white billboards that are sprouting like spring flowers all over the country? They say, get us out of the United Nations. Well, do you suppose someone is trying to tell us something? I do and I'm wholly in favor of the message. Now, why should our country stay in the United Nations? No good has come to America from that fraudulent so-called peacekeeping body, but plenty of grief has come our way since its preliminary founding two weeks, two weeks after the Pearl Harbor massacre and its official chartering in 1945. American servicemen have died by the tens of thousands, and as we've stated, over 75 wars have been fought and more to come while inept and incompetent ambassadors from pipsqueak nations low in luxury upon our shores. Methinks, my friends, the American people have been took. Now, there's no godly reason for the existence of the United Nations, and in reality, Jesus Christ, our Savior, has been forbidden entry into its halls. Instead, they have a room for quiet meditation devoid of all reference to the Savior. Now, it makes me wonder how all of those who call themselves Christians can sanction our membership. And just recently I went to the United Nations and I went into that room of meditation. And uh, if you've ever been in a more satanic influence, you'll never find it anywhere else any better than you'll find in the room for meditation at the United Nations building. Now, little by little, while Americans were asleep at the switch, one worldism creeps into our local governments. Many cities in America have passed resolutions proclaiming themselves citizens of the world. Los Angeles did that a few years ago. And of course, many other cities are doing the same thing. And recently in Philadelphia, they signed a declaration of interdependence. You may recall that in your newspapers a while back. And a hundred or so congressmen signed that particular declaration of interdependence. And every one of them should be hung for the high crime of treason, in my opinion, for signing that. <laughs> America doesn't need the world. The world needs America. And the sooner we in America understand that particular little situation, the better off we're going to be. Now, how do we reach the people with the true facts concerning the United Nations? One way is to follow up on the information given on those billboards. Another is to read the volumes of material written by leading anti-communist authors. A third way is to listen closely to this talk. I'm going to list 31 or more very simple reasons why we should resign from the United Nations and raise the building from our shores. Now, if these points don't hit home, prove me wrong. In your effort to find me wrong, you will soon convince yourself of the truth. All right, here we go. One, the United Nations Charter was written by Alger Hiss, Molotov, and Vashinsky, all communist. And of course, Alger Hiss was our own homegrown 
member of the party. Two, Molotov and Algerhis made a secret agreement that the military chief of the United Nations was always to be a communist. That according to Trigby Lee, the first secretary general elected by the United Nations. Three, it was Russia who insisted the United Nations be placed upon United States soil. And of course, the land was given by that great humanitarian family, the Rockefellers. It was Russia, as I said, who insisted it be on UN soil, and whole sections of the United Nations Charter were copied intact, word for word, from the Russian Constitution. Read them side by side. Five, Khrushchev's orders to the communists before his disposal by the Rockefellers rule the United Nations. Six, the only two United States senators who voted against the United Nations Charter were the only two United States senators who read it, Senator Shipstead of Minnesota and Senator Langer of North Dakota. The vote was 89-4, two against, and five abstentions. Now, of course, the 89 senators of our United States uh, who voted in favor of the charter did not read it, but they had it explained to them by emissaries of the UN, who, of course, turned out to be communists. Since the founding of the United Nations, communist enslavement has grown from 250 million to approximately 1 billion souls. Since the United Nations was founded, communists have incited 14 major wars and 61 lesser conflicts. The United Nations is useless on vital questions because Russia has veto power. On the Security Council of 11 members, there are five permanent members, the United States, Russia, Red China, replacing Free China, England, and France. Under the United Nations setup, the U.S. taxpayers have been forced to make up the U.N. Treasury deficit of millions of dollars. Now, Russia refuses to pay her share, thereby violating the United Nations Charter. Chapter 4, Article 19. The United Nations has never passed a resolution condemning Russia or her satellites, but does continue a constant condemnation of the United States. The late and great J. Edgar Hoover said, quote, the overwhelming majority of the communist delegations to the United Nations are espionage agents, end quote. The United Nations helps Russia's conquest of the world by preventing the free world from taking any action whatsoever except to debate new aggression in the General Assembly, which is predominantly Marxist, and where Russia has three votes to our one. Now, where is the democracy there? And they base their need for three votes on the fact that they consider themselves three nations within one, USSR, Bielorussia, and the Ukraine. That's like giving Los Angeles, Chicago, and New York a vote in the United Nations. At the time of the Korean War, there were 60 nations in the United Nations, yet 93% of the United Nations forces were American, and 99% of the cost was borne by Americans. The United Nations policy during the Korean War was to prevent America from winning the victory over the communists. All battle plans were first sent to the office of the Undersecretary General for Political and Security Council Affairs, always headed by a red. Article 47, paragraph 3 of the United Nations Charter states, the military staff committee shall be responsible under the Security Council 
for the strategic direction of any armed forces placed at the disposal of the Security Council, end quote. All battle plans of General MacArthur had to go through this Soviet chief. One major reason MacArthur was fired by Truman was that he refused to divulge his plans to the communists. He intended to win the war. All future wars fought by the United Nations will be fought under the same military operation controlled by the United Nations Security Council. The United Nations does nothing about the thousands of Russian troops that occupy Hungary, and where was the United Nations when the Hungarian freedom fighters were being murdered? And what became of Eisenhower's promise to help the Hungarian anti-communist? Well, if you want to find out who Dwight David Eisenhower really was, you read a book called The Politician. We may have some on the table back there, and uh, we do. You read that book, you'll find that Dwight David Eisenhower was not the man you think he was. The United Nations and its army turned the Congo over to the communists. And for all the gory details, we'd have you read a book called The Fearful Master. We have on the table back there tonight by G. Edward Griffin, a close friend of mine, and a man who once, at one time, was also an apologist for the United Nations, but soon found that he was wrong and did his research and exposed in this book, The Fearful Master, the true story of the United Nations. The United Nations' misnamed Peace Force was used to kill and crush the Christians, the anti-communists in Katanga, ousting Moishambe and putting Patrice Lumumba in charge. A book that will give you some background of that is a book called 46 Angry Men, which gives you the whole story of what took place in the Congo at that time and how 46 doctors attempted to stop the bombings of hospitals and the murdering of small infants and babies by the United Nations Peace Force. Of course, they threw Moishambe out, the only anti-communist leader of the Congo at the time in the province of Katanga, and uh, put Patrice Lumumba in charge. And the chaos grew so bad that even Patrice Lumumba had to be thrown out by his communist mentors, which was a bad situation for Patrice because he disappeared. And later was, uh, well, there's some proof to the fact that they found Patrice had been eaten by his constituents. But it's hard to say. The United Nations stood by while red Chinese troops poured into Laos, Vietnam, and Tibet. Tibet today is no longer Tibet. It was assimilated by Red China, an undeniable act of genocide. The United Nations stood by while Nehru invaded Goa and other Portuguese holdings. The United Nations aided Castro and still does. Even Adlai Stevenson, who was by no means a conservative, said, quote, the free world can expect to lose more and more decisions in the United Nations, end quote. Now, perhaps this was one of the statements that led to uh, Adlai's uh, early demise. He was found dead with a very mysterious heart attack shortly after. The aim of the United Nations is a one-world government, which means world laws, a world court, world navy, world army, world schools, and a world church without Christ. The disarmament of our country is now in process through the United Nations, as outlined by the United States State Department document 7277, which we do have available for you tonight in one of our packets. 
You must read this document, Unilateral Disarmament of the United States in Favor of a U.N. Army. And Nixon himself committed America to turning our arms over to that U.N. Army. He did this in writing in Moscow on May 29, 1972. Now, the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization, CETO, is a control apparatus through which the United Nations Security Council directed the conduct of the war in Vietnam. They keep telling us, of course, that the war in Vietnam had nothing to do with the United Nations, but it certainly did. It was directed completely by the UN. CETO, signed at Manila on September 8, 1954, binds the signatory nations, including the United States, to the United Nations and to the provisions of the United Nations Charter. However, any treaty in violation of our Constitution is null and void. All our Congress must do is to enforce our own Constitution of the United States. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, contains almost the same wording as the CETO Treaty, thus providing the United Nations Security Council strategic control over American military forces in Europe. Operational control of the United Nations Security Council, the war-making arm of the United Nations, is exercised by the executive officer of the Security Council. This executive officer also holds the title of Undersecretary General for Political and Security Council Affairs. He is the custodian of all U.S. plans for self-defense, and he controls all military forces placed at the disposal of the United Nations in consonance with the United Nations Charter, Articles 44, 45, and 46. And as we stated earlier, this officer is always a communist. Currently, it is Arkady Sherdenchenko, a Russian. In July 1965, President Johnson told the American people that American soldiers were dying in Vietnam because of the U.S. commitment to the CETO agreement. We expect to keep that commitment, said the president. And President Nixon continued in the same manner as does President Ford today. Now, if all of this isn't enough for our proof of our disengagement from the United Nations, and you're still unconvinced, well, as the unsinkable Molly Brown said, I ain't done yet. Here's some more incriminating evidence. The date is October 25th, 1971. The scene is the General Assembly building. There, in violation of its own charter, the United Nations, by a vote of 76 to 35, ousted the legal government of Free China, one of the five permanent members of the Security Council. Wild with glee at this slap at America, UN delegates dropped all semblance of dignity and danced in the aisles. It was like the Oo-Wagadoo-Goos roasting gazelle rumps in the jungle is what it amounted to. George Bush was our ambassador at the time, and he and the U.S. government accepted this travesty of justice, so we're still members. Seven years earlier, however, when George Bush was running for the Senate from Texas, he took quite a different picture of the United Nations and a different attitude. At that time, he maintained, quote, if Red China should be admitted to the United Nations, then the United Nations is hopeless and we should withdraw, end quote. Well, you see, George had bigger ambitions because he was on his way to much higher things. And where is George Bush today? Why, of course, he heads the CIA, doesn't he? 
He has the principles of a retarded toad with acne. That's what he has. But George Bush is not by far the only one guilty of empty rhetoric on the subject. During his 1968 quest for the presidency, Richard Nixon proclaimed, quote, I would not recognize Red China now, and I would not agree to admitting it to the United Nations, and I wouldn't go along with those well-intentioned people that said trade with them because that may change them, because doing it now would only encourage them, the hardliners in Peking, and the hardline policy they're following, end quote. Well, you saw what Richard Nixon did, didn't you? He was the first president to go there, and guess what? Of course, he's there again today, isn't he? You know, I don't have too much uh, uh, bad feeling about Richard going to Red China. I just hope he doesn't come back. (laughs) But it didn't happen the way that Nixon wanted or said in that little quote, did it? The hardliners are having it their way. Well, don't we have any hardliners, you might be asking? Well, let's look at some of our leaders who led us into our present predicament of United Nations membership. Following the armistice of 1918, President Woodrow Wilson sent to the Paris Peace Conference with E. Mandel House, Thomas Lamont of J.P. Morgan Company, and Paul Warburg of Kuhn Loan and Company in order to bring the League of Nations into being. <coughs> Excuse me. But the League of Nations failed because the United States Senate refused to ratify it, due largely to the efforts of Henry Cabot Lodge, not to be confused in any way with his grandson of the same name, who has somehow acquired the nickname Henry Sabotage. Yes, we had a Congress then that recognized the danger of an entangling alliance with a foreign league that could weaken our sovereignty. Still, the hardliners for world government didn't take Congress's no for an answer. Those same men soon formed an organization to idealize the concept of one world government. Now, before I give you that organization's name and who they are, let me ask you a question so I might gauge the degree of knowledge you have in the area. How many people in this audience, by a show of hands, can tell me if they've ever heard of an organization in America called the Council on Foreign Relations? Thank you. That's very good. For those of you who didn't put your hand up, I certainly don't want you to feel embarrassed. Because these people are not exactly in the business of exposing themselves. They, uh, their PR man is usually hired to hide what they're doing, not the other way around. But they're very germane to our problems in America because they have been responsible for many of our problems in America, if not all, concerning the uh, wars we've fought and so on. This Council on Foreign Relations, as I said, was put into operation because the League failed and they had to find now a way to control the domestic and foreign policy of America and the destiny of its people. So shortly after that, as I said, at the Paris meeting, uh, a group of men got together. We mentioned some of them earlier. There was John Foster Dulles, Alan Dulles, Bernard Baruch, and Emando House himself, who was the international banker's agent here in the United States. Now, these men put that organization together and got operating about 1921. Today, by their own admission, in their foreign affairs quarterlies and other writings, they admit that their purpose, their total purpose, is to bring America into a one-world socialist government under the United Nations. Can't get much clearer than that. They make 
maintain that purpose. That group today has a membership of approximately 1,650 uh, men and a few women. Uh, uh, Bella Bedbug got her nose into that one <laughs> and forced them to... Uh, oh, Abzug. Abzug is her name, isn't it? I'm sorry. But anyhow, uh, they have about 1,650 uh, men and women in their membership, and the chairman of that organization is a man you're very familiar with, on the one hand. On the other hand, you don't know too much about him because his PR man is in the same kind of business of hiding what he does. But he is uh, part of a brother act. As a matter of fact, he is the youngest of the brothers. And he is the smartest of the brothers. And in my opinion, he is the most evil, the most heinous of those brothers. His name? David Rockefeller. Chairman of the Chase Manhattan Bank, which their media is always telling us is the third largest bank in America but always conveniently forget to let us know that David and his brothers control the second largest bank in America, First National City. And I've often wondered how that good old Catholic Giannini and Bank of America ever got to be first place with those two backsliding Baptists right on his tail. <laughs> kind of makes you wonder, doesn't it? Well, maybe they're not up there. Well, that was just a brief. Now, months before Pearl Harbor... The State Department authorized the Council on Foreign Relations to form groups of experts to proceed with research into post-war planning. Post-war planning? We hadn't had a war yet. Do you think they knew something we didn't? Planning for the United Nations was taken over by the members of the Council on Foreign Relations. Now, the architect of, U of the UN Charter was Russian-born Leo Pozvolsky, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. He was also chief of the Division of Special Research at the, uh, uh, at the State Department. And born of communist parents, he came to the United States in 1934 and was impeached by God, May 18, 1953. Praise the Lord. Alger Hiss, the convicted perjurer, worked closely with Pazvolsky in writing the Charter of the United Nations, and Hiss at the time, Alger Hiss, the same Alger Hiss, now back in... Uh, good uh, uh, graces with the American Bar Association and so forth, Hiss at the time was a member of a communist cell called the Ware Cell in Washington, D.C. Now, if you get that copy of the book, The Fearful Master, tonight, and you want to check up on what I've just said, you'll find it on page 87 and 88 of that book, The Fearful Master, with all the documentation you need. Hiss was a Soviet agent, and quite fittingly, also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Now, Hiss played a key role at the Yalta Conference, and again later at the Dumbarton Oaks Conference in Washington, D.C., where from August 21st to September 28, 1944, agreements on the content of the United Nations Charter were worked out with the Soviets. Hiss was also Roosevelt's top man on international affairs. In 1950, the State Department issued an official report naming the 17 key government figures who did the planning for the creation of the United Nations. Now, since that time, all but one has been identified in sworn testimony as a communist agent. The exception was Dean Acheson. However, any communist casting director would have hired him. He gave such a good imitation. He was actually hired by Stalin to serve as Russia's legal counsel in the United States. His act got rave reviews, and he reached stardom by succeeding another would-be ruler, George Marshall, 
as Secretary of State in 1949. But we're not finished yet with our friend Alger Hiss. Hiss was the first temporary Secretary General of the United Nations. And working with Hiss and 15 other identified communist agents at San Francisco were 43 members of the Council on Foreign Relations, including John Foster Dulles of the J. Henry Schroeder Bank, the bank that helped to finance Adolf Hitler, Edward R. Stettinius of J.P. Morgan and Company, Nelson Rockefeller, whose family, of course, controls the Chase Manhattan Bank at First National City, and John J. McCloy, the chairman of the board of Chase Manhattan Bank. Now, Hiss personally took the charter to Washington for presentation to the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee, and the UN began its reign. Now, the first elected Secretary General was Trigby Lee, a dedicated socialist and Marxist from Norway. The second was Dag Hammarskjöld, a Marxist from Sweden. The third was Utant, a Marxist from Burma, now deceased. And not long before that, he said it the way the United Nations really sees it. Now, here's an article from the Los Angeles Times of April 7th, 1970, and a statement that Utant made concerning the UN policies and Lenin. Secretary General Utant praised Vladimir I. Lenin, founder of the Soviet Union, as a political leader whose ideals were reflected in the United Nations Charter. Lenin, Lenin, he said, was a man with a mind of great clarity and incisiveness, and his ideas have had a profound influence on the course of contemporary history. He went on to say, the ideals of peace, Lenin's ideals of peace and peaceful coexistence among states have won widespread international acceptance, and they are in line with the aims of the United Nations Charter. Read that peaceful letter and peaceful quotation to the millions of slaves in the concentration camps in Siberia and the rest of the world and see if they consider the United Nations aims peaceful and in line with Lenin's aims of peaceful coexistence. Then we have current Secretary General Kurt Baldheim, an Austrian Marxist and Socialist. Ultimate control of the United Nations is in the hands of the members of the permanent staff of the Secretariat, where resolutions and edicts of the General Assembly and Security Council are either neutralized or given the strength to carry them out. Now, you may be interested to know that the United Nations has approximately 6,000 employees in the Secretariat. About one-fourth of these hold supervisory and policy-making positions. Now, would you care to guess how many of these are self-proclaimed communists? The pus, the pus spewing out of the left side of the United Nations body is putrid enough. But listen to this report on what's supposed to be our side of that living corpse. Not many years ago, a New York grand jury Alarmed at communist penetration into the United Nations staff of the UN, the U.S. staff of that United Nations staff, did a grand-scale inquiry and released this statement. Quote, This jury must, as a duty to the people of the United States, advise the court that startling evidence has disclosed infiltration into the United Nations of an overwhelmingly large group of disloyal United States citizens many of whom are closely associated with the international communist movement. 
This group numbers scores of individuals, most of whom have long records of federal employment and at the same time have been connected with persons and organizations subversive to this country, end quote. So much for our side. And of course, there was a follow-up made by a committee of Congress which maintained the very same premise. Now, these are the ones who didn't even smart from the slap of Red China's admission. The faces of real Americans would have turned red. Theirs already were. Red China wasted no time in moving its spies into the United Nations headquarters. China's Deputy Foreign Minister, Kiao Huanghua, a top intelligence operative for Peking, was head of the first Red Chinese delegation to the United Nations. Kiao's deputy, Wang Hua, is described by American intelligence sources as a gifted saboteur and espionage agent. Now, Wang Hua may not be a familiar name to some of you, but were they alive, 5,000 American soldiers who were butchered in Korea on his order would shout for revenge. Yes, Wang Hua is the man who ordered the 5,000 Americans executed with their hands tied with wires behind their backs. Pictures that were circulated during the Korean War showed American soldiers lying row upon row, twisted and contorted in death, frozen horror upon their young faces. And the man responsible now sits and enjoys American hospitality as a UN ambassador. The word from Washington upon the appointment of Wang Hua was that President Nixon was pleased at the caliber of man the Reds said to be their representative. We are indeed living in a world gone crazy. This information was, of course, not given to the people by the media because not even the hopeless liberals, when faced with such evidence, could ignore the complete sickness of the United Nations. Yes, the Americans who died during that first no-win war are crying for revenge, or at least a victory. Remember, those GIs were the Johnny Joneses, the Billy Smiths, and the Genos, and the Manuals, and the Irvings. And they came from the concrete canyons of New York, the great plains of the Midwest, the spiraling Rockies, and the sandy beaches of the West Coast. Tomorrow... They could also be your sons, who are too young for Vietnam. As long as the United Nations is allowed to exist, there will be constant war and continuing death for Americans. The United Nations is nothing more than a vehicle to bring America into a one-world state under its complete control. There are 144 countries now represented in the United Nations. More than half of these nations have populations with fewer people than New York City. Each of these countries has a vote equal to that of the United States, with the result that so-called nations, such as Qatar, Bahrain, Bhutan, Oman, and Chad, now hold the balance of power in the General Assembly. Now, that may not sound fair to you, but it uh, suits some people just fine. For instance, speaking for the insiders, the late financier, James Warburg, whose relatives financed the communist revolution in Russia, told a Senate committee in 1950, quote, we shall have world government, 
whether you like it or not, if not by consent, by conquest, end quote. The most vocal organization working to convince Americans to accept such a world government is the United World Federalist, a group whose membership is heavily interlocked with that of the Council on Foreign Relations. It is extremely interesting to note that the United World Federalist was founded by the senator from California, Alan Cranston, and the former governor of the state of California, Ronald Reagan. Now, if you think they're strange bedfellows, you have another think. I'm from California. We know what Ronnie is out there. He didn't lower our taxes in California. They went skyrocketing out of sight. He didn't lower the welfare loads. They went out of sight, too. No, don't you believe that Ronald Reagan is a conservative anti-communist? If you do, you would be naive enough to believe you would see Gus Hall singing the Star Spangled Banner at a John Burt Society meeting. <laughs> no, we tell it like it is. It's June of last year, I did a broadcast on Ronald Reagan out in California on my radio show, and I called it Ronald Reagan Has a Record. And I laid it down in three pages of facts that anybody can check out. Ronnie didn't seem to want to check it out. He wrote me a letter and called me a liar. Three pages of rhetoric again. And the other night I was up in New Hampshire, you know, and of course up in New Hampshire all these candidates were running around the place up there, Secret Service in the same hotel I was in, just so happened, I was speaking at the Berkshire Inn up there, and uh, who do you suppose is in the same hotel? But Ronald Reagan and Morris Udall, both of the men who I go after extremely well in my talks, and uh, we invited them down to listen to my talk. Of course, they didn't show. Uh, but we did make the page, front page of the Manchester Union leader, uh, telling how phony both of them were. So we hope that uh, tonight we'll see some better kind of response from the New Hampshireans. Now, the United World Federalist want a repeal of the Connolly Reservation, which would mean that the United Nations would accept as binding the ruling of the International Court of Justice, World Court on Disarmament, on interpretation of the United Nations Charter and laws and international treaties. They would turn over all military weapons to the United Nations Army, give the United Nations power to tax, remove the veto from the executive branch, require universal membership without the right of secession, and empower a court system with jurisdiction over all nations and individuals. Sound like strong language? Let me go further. The ultimate move to strengthen the United Nations is to give it a monopoly on military power. You see, the UN doesn't really care about atomic bombs and nuclear weapons. They just want to be the ones who drop them to effectively disarm all of the member nations and then enforce the laws set up by the communist-dominated United Nations with a communist-controlled United Nations Army. And that's not just a disconnected dream of our would-be dictators. Listen to this. In June of 1961, John J. McCloy, at the time chairman of the board of the Rockefeller-controlled Council on Foreign Relations and special advisor to the President on Disarmament, sent to the White House the draft of a bill to create a U.S. disarmament agency. In this letter of transmittal to the president, he revealed that the fundamental purpose of the disarmament agency would be to bring about world government. Late that year, Congress passed the Arms Control and Disarmament Act, 
conferring on the director of the new disarmament agency broad authority under the general supervision of the president and the secretary of state to do just about anything the director might believe to be in the interest of peace. It was almost a word-for-word duplication of a disarmament proposal advanced by Khrushchev in 1959. And that according to the late congressman from California, James Zutt. But many congressmen still supported creation of this disarmament agency because they were afraid of being accused of opposing peace. The formal disarmament proposal was later published in a 19-page report entitled Freedom from War, the State Department publication 7277 we mentioned earlier, series number 5, September 1961, which we do have available for you this evening. It is subtitled, The United States Program for General and Complete Disarmament in a Peaceful World. It calls for transferring control of U.S. nuclear weapons to the United Nations, restricting the American military to the role of internal police force and establishing an all-powerful United Nations Army. The Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty, now commonly referred to as the SALT Treaty, is just one more step toward complete disarmament and world government. The objectives laid down by the insiders in document 7277 have not changed. Under the Charter of the United Nations, the International Peace Force with its, or should I say, our nuclear weapons, would be commanded by the Undersecretary General for Political and Security Council Affairs. A position, as you'll recall, I mentioned earlier, is always to be held by a communist. And never has one of our presidents or any of our ambassadors to the United Nations even suggested that that extremely sensitive position be given to anyone else but a communist. How do you suppose they've all been the same down the years? Since even before Franklin Delano Roosevelt said, some of my best friends are communist. Has the long succession of appeasers forever drowned out the clear call of patriots who love America and hate her enemies? What's happening? What's happening in our dear old USA? What's happened to the good old USA? Well, to start with, apathy, greed, and liberalism have happened to the good old USA. Unrestricted immigration, welfare, pornography, humanism, sex education, the 18-year-old vote, and near-total government have happened to the good old USA. The United Nations, no-win wars, hippies, yippies, Black Panthers, White Panthers, and professional students waving American flags desecrated by the atheistic, communistic peace symbol have happened to the good old USA. Tax-free foundations, income taxes, mobocracy, ecology, taxonomy, sensitivity training, bombings, riots, the Council on Foreign Relations, and Fabian Socialism have happened to the good old USA. Permissiveness, the Supreme Court, Government schools, wars on poverty, legalized abortion, woman's lib, the PTA, and TVA have happened to the good old USA. Democracy, autocracy, oligarchy, and demagoguery have happened to the good old USA. Communes, rock music, drugs, crime running rampant, abolition of the death penalty, apostate churches teaching the social gospel, and the international bankers have happened to the good old USA. The Atlantic Union Committee, the Genocide Convention, Senators Cranston, Tunney, Muskie, McGovern, Fulbright, Hatfield, Mansfield, Humphrey, Percy, Bye, Brooke, Kennedy, Javits, Scott, Jackson, and Church 
have happened to the good old USA. We could go all, all night. But take heart. Take heart. Because Americans are beginning to stir from 40 years of sleep. The foundation is holding firm. The crumbling will stop. And like a mighty wave that has been gathering momentum, America's people are beginning to fight back. All over this great land, the Minutemen of old are rising. Clarion calls are being sounded. The tide is turning. The youth culture is dying of its own excesses. Men are once again acting like men. A whole new era is approaching. This is the dawning of the age of awareness, not Aquarius. Our God is still on that throne, and the righteous shall triumph. Now, we may face a time of severe trial, and many of us may not see that victorious day when the air is cleared of treason and the sun shines brightly once again on our Columbia, the gem of the ocean. But it's worth the cost. Duty, honor, country, said General MacArthur. Rally round the flag, boys. Damn the torpedoes. Wait until you see the whites of their eyes. We have just begun to fight. And we can win. Now is not the time to quit. Let's not be neutralized by the seemingly endless string of campaigns lost to these socialists. They know that the closer they come to their goal of total control, the more vulnerable they become to exposure. The conspirators are treading ever thinner ice and must do so in the dark. We have light and truth on our side. And as the showdown approaches, the odds keep getting better for us. Now, if you haven't joined our God's winning side, You'd better do it quickly. Don't fall for the media slurs aimed at patriotic anti-communist groups like the John Burt Society. You go first class. If you can find a better group, join it. But you better do something. Now, if you want that good old USA back, you're going to have to work at it. America as she used to be is fond history. What she will become depends on you. And where do we start in this monumental task which is ours? Why, we start from right where we stand, in the middle of the most colossal mess this nation has ever been in. And we start now. The starting gun in this race for freedom was fired long ago during the Wilson administration, in fact. And thank God for the few patriots who heard it then and prevented that League of Nations from beginning the seat of world government. Starting guns have been fired during every administration since, but still, only a relatively few have been running in the race. There are some who will never start, though, because they're waiting for some starting official to tell them to line up in orderly fashion, in a straight-across line, one knee to the ground, as if this were a fair race. Actually, it's a mad race, like something out of Alice in Wonderland, directed by mad hatters who keep changing hats. The nutty queens of woman's lib who would topple the women from their pedestals. Jabberwocky birds who chirp in dialect tees. Cheshire cats whose grins conceal forked tongues in both cheeks. But who, unlike Alice's cat, don't fade away soon enough? Such are the conditions of the race in which we must be prepared to run barefoot over the jagged edges of what's left of our Constitution, over an obstacle course littered by the living bodies of those we've elected who failed us, 
over high hurdles fashioned by nine men in black robes. Through sticky, spidery nets being oozed out of bodies like the Council on Foreign Relations. Climbing the icy slopes of the indifference of the uninvolved. Across the barren deserts of their scorn. Passing our batons swiftly, but cautiously, because members of the other team often wear anti-communist uniforms. Refusing the poison carrots dangled by the vote buyers. Carrying our guns, ammunition, food and water on our backs and fording the moats and keeping our heads above Watergate. Leaping like human gazelles over the pits of prejudice dug by these haters, scaling the slippery sides of the house that Hiss built, wearing the whole armor of God to ward off Satan's fiery darts, and on and on and on and on toward the mark which seems to keep fading into the horizon. A mad race joined only by the Olympically angry people who have had enough of the whip of their would-be masters. People who know that we have suffered a terrible loss and are seeking that which is lost. The people who are honest enough to face what we are. We are one nation, rationed and regionalized, a people subsidized, computerized and factionalized, divisible because we are leaving the concept of being under God, abandoning the people and the hope of glory, the hopelessness of one world under the godless United Nations. Let's now just take a selective look at some of the United Nations advances on a few fronts. Among its more drastic aims are a world sales tax imposed at first at a comparatively low rate of uh, cost on luxury items which of course means it would be paid by those who can afford luxury items. Who else but the beneficiaries of the free enterprise system? The very Americans who, with only one vote out of some 144 nations, already pay 30 to 40 percent of all dues assessed. Plus, and this is a very big plus, all sorts of hidden amounts including buying almost all of the worthless bonds the United Nations issues to pay its debts to everyone but us, and paying for the enormous upkeep of the one building in the whole country that deserves to be victimized by urban renewal. <laughs> almost makes one feel like joining the other side long enough to get an end with the people who keep knocking down buildings. I'd be a bulldozer operator. <laughs> with first crack at cracking glass. And I'd be very conscientious about not polluting the East River with glass fragments. I'd have no choice but to push the United Nations building in the opposite direction. And woe to the National Council of Churches building directly across the street. That might settle a lot of problems, too. Yes, take a good look at the deductions from your paycheck or the taxes on your business, and you get mad enough to join this mad race. If forced philanthropy doesn't bother you, maybe it will disturb you to learn that while one slimy United Nations tentacle is reaching into your pocket, another is reaching into the nursery. Are you listening, mom and dad? You newlyweds who hope to have children of your own? 
grandparents, they want to make your children citizens of the world who will pay allegiance to the world state, not to parents, country, or God. Absurd, you say. About as absurd as the childish fantasy that Santa Claus can't get into the house if you forget to leave the chimney flue open. You can't keep world government out of your house by locking the doors at night before you tuck the little ones into bed. Even with a, now I lay me down to sleep, and a God bless mommy and daddy. Unless you do the Lord's work as you pray for his blessing and protection. Certainly one of the most important aspects of that work is the preservation of the family as our God ordained. Know your enemy. The UN underworld has plans for your children. And during the past 12 years, the United States Office of Education and Department of Health, Education and Welfare have been implementing every major proposal of the 1960 UNESCO Treaty which would deliver the entire U.S. educational system into international control. The most frightening developments in the field of education recently are the proposed federal daycare centers and a monstrosity known as PPBS. Now let's take these two bitter pills one at a time and then make sure to regurgitate them, which is easy because they are truly sickening. Both are steps on the road toward federal child control, leading toward control by an agency of the United Nations. Now, I've done some broadcasts dealing entirely with the proposed federal child care centers. One was entitled Federal Children, another Big Brother, Once Little Brother. Now, though President Nixon at the time vetoed the Comprehensive Child Development Act, I believe it was just one of those small steps backward which it was expedient to take because the timing wasn't right. The American people haven't yet been sufficiently conditioned to accept kidnapping as anything but a capital crime. Too many patriots made it their business to expose the true intent of the bill, and that's how we win every time we do. Former President Nixon, debating and displaying his agility to slip easily from left to right, and knowing which side to butter his brood, vetoed the bill. Now, unless you understand dialectics, that seems like a strange move. For you may recall that President Nixon, addressing Congress in 1969, recommended that the government, be, government become involved in developing children during the first five years of life. That's from infancy to kindergarten. Shocking, but as usual, not original. The idea of the states assuming responsibility for children was argued in Plato's time, implemented in Hitler's youth movement, and practice it whole or part in every socialist state before and since. Now, the Washington version of child control included instructions to the Secretary of Hugh to program a 24-hour day for your little ones and a battery of trained professionals utilizing therapy and even drugs to overcome emotional barriers. Now, we're, though we're talking about a bill that was vetoed, we're not beating a dead horse just a hobbled one that has been turned loose on us again. That bill is now in the Senate as Senate Bill 626 by Javitson Mondale. In the House, it's House Resolution 2966, 
by a congressman from Indiana named Bradamus. Now, as the merry-go-round turns, we see a mechanical horse computerized by PPBS. Now, PPBS is a subject which to cover in depth would require an hour at the very least. And since I'm going to take just a few moments here, I'll only be skimming the surface. PPBS stands for Planning, Programming, and Budgeting System, often disguised as an accounting system to bring about fiscal responsibility. It is, in fact, just what the name implies, a total system of planning, programming, and budgeting. The planning to be done by the people who will program the computers at the expense of your budget and your future. Now, the system could be used not only to cycle and recycle children and teachers until they conform to the predetermined input, but in every aspect of life from business to science to government, including the military, to developing, managing, and evaluating social programs, shades of science fiction. Now, here is where, as my good friend Gary Allen says, the plot sickens. Looks like the federal child control bill failed to get the president's approval, partly because he was smarter than Congress and was afraid it couldn't be made to stick until the PPBS computerized system was in full force and in effect to implement it. Soon after the veto, the author of the bill, a Mr. Bradamus, took his select subcommittee on education on a tour of Soviet Russia to investigate the Soviet educational systems. Now remember, we supply the Soviets with computers. Could it be that they're the guinea pigs who will serve to get the kinks out of the computer control system, which, when perfected, will be applied to the much harder to control citizens of the prize of all nations? And that's us, the U.S. Do you remember, some years back, the news reports about the expulsion of the U.S. congressman from Russia? Well, the media never told you the real reason he was expelled. According to the highly reliable Paul Scott report, the congressman had been having dinner with one Alexander Lerner, a top Soviet computer specialist who risked being sent to a mental institution by being sent to a mental institution by signing an open letter asking for support to leave the country. Now that alone might not make news, but the fact that the congressman was closely questioned as to what he had been told by Lerner, plus an article by Victor Zorsa, a recognized authority on Soviet affairs should have been cause for headlines. The Zorsa article, according to Scott, describes the growth of a massive computerized information system in Russia and delineates the uses to which it is to be put as a weapon of thought control. Scott stated that the Zorsa report, along with other information, clearly shows how the power of a computerized information system coupled with mood-creating or altering biochemical discoveries, provides a new tool for suppressing dissent in Russia. Now, though the plans to drug those of our citizens under the age of five failed with the veto of this Comprehensive Child Development Act, behavior modification drugs have been and are now being used Soviet-style on children of school age in our own country but not to the degree envisioned by these world planners. And how do you think the United Nations would vote on PPBS? How would you like to be the quasi-legal subjects of their decision? Never, you say. Then why is it, my friends, 
that we allow our own United States Office of Education and the Health Education Welfare Department to begin implementing every major proposal of the UNESCO International Treaty on Education. No, we won't buy socialism, communism, or the United Nations or the United Socialist States of America under those names. But bit by sugar-coated bit, we are swallowing the bait. The wiggly, wicked, deadly red worm a direct descendant of the snake in the Garden of Eden. A little evil tolerated, a wound left to fester, and the usurper germs invade the whole body. As Alexander Pope so poignantly put it, vice is a monster of so frightful mien, and to be hated needs but to be seen, yet seen too oft familiar with her face. We must endure, then pity, then embrace. Let me conclude this portion with these questions. Would you judge that we are now in the hating, enduring, pitying, or embracing stage? If enough of us hated evil, would we not be quick and sure to recognize it and face it down? If we can endure a little evil, how much more would be all right? How many of us know enough to even pity the evil effects of what we've allowed? Are we not even now caught in its illicit embrace? Let's be realistic about where what we are so that we can move on to the happier subject of what we can be. I know I've said some awful things hard on your hearing. In fact, I have a neighbor at home who says she won't even listen to me anymore because I give her hives. <laughs> I almost feel like inviting you to a uh, seventh inning scratch. But God hath not always promised skies always blue. Which reminds me of a little personal story, if I may, and if you'll permit, when my daughter, Stephanie, was very small, we were out on a long drive to somewhere I don't even remember. She and I and her mother and our son, Michael. And it was one of those mixed California spring days combining showers with just a little tantalizing hint of the summer sun to come. And our little Stephanie saw a rainbow in the sky and quite naturally asked why. Well, I explained that God first made it rain, and then he made the sunshine to light up the tiny drops and made each one glow with his lovely colors. Well, I thought that was pretty good and rather poetic of me. But what she said then is what I remember best. And very fondly, she said, Oh, I wish I could cry and laugh and make a rainbow. Well, you know, that's the only way you can make a rainbow. The harsh realities we face, if we face them, can be so lit by the truth that it will shine through to all across this land. And we're going to have to let our servants in Washington know we're not going to buy the plan, sell out of the Panama Canal to the Reds, the proposed world sales tax, 
the Genocide Treaty, the Atlantic Union Resolution. And we're going to have to convince the insiders we mean business about keeping our national sovereignty as set forth by the United States Constitution or impeach the whole gaggle of gangsters for the high crime of treason against the United States. God help us to go on. And I pray he will. The Lord is my shepherd. In a time when I can see no hope in looking to the men who lead our nation, I am grateful that the Lord leads. I shall not want. I shall not want, for his unchanging principles are ever before me. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures, beautiful fields and farms of my country that have long satisfied hunger, both physical and spiritual. He leadeth me beside the still waters. Yes, the Lord knows his sheep. They will drink only from the still assured waters of the true peace that only free men know. He restoreth my soul. Would that he could restore the soul of the America that dared to be free against all odds. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Only our walk on those high paths has preserved us a nation. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the death of a nation walking in the shadow of old oppressions once cast off, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, one nation under God. Thy rod and thy staff they comfort me. The shepherd's rod of chastisement marks out the narrow path for his sheep, and the crook of his staff encircles and redeems each of his creatures who flounders toward the precipice. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies, and oh, how they rise up on all sides, but the Lord shall provide. Thou anointest my head with oil, whether for sacrifice or for splendor, thy will be done. My cup runneth over. Only unrestrained, uncontainable good is thine ultimate will. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. This life, which is but a testing place. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Where the Lord shall reign in love over the children of his house in the heavenly kingdom that is not of this world. But now the world is too much with us. The new world order advocated by the Fords, the Kissingers, the Rockefellers is about to be imposed upon us unless we stop it. The United Nations is a house of glass which seems and seeks to reproduce itself millions of times over, providing a house of glass for each of us. And therein we would be exposed to the all-seeing eye of the mother house, the parasite we host on our shores. Oh, yes, we can return to being one nation under God, not the United Nations. Once we have seen to it that the Red Glass House on the East River has been vacated. Now, if we preserve and persevere and keep on pursuing what seems to be the impossible dream of rescuing the Republic from the grasp of the world planners, if when we are shaken, realizing our own human frailty and despicable weakness, knowing what unworthy vessels we be, if when we are almost persuaded that all is lost 
and then continue to work, weary and frightened, even disillusioned by people and things, and it seems not some glory-filled crusade, but just work, uncelebrated, but a matter of life and death. Then, then that is the moment, the crest of the crisis, when we shall sound the high note for God, family, and country that will shatter the world of glass. That's really what I came here to say tonight. We can win. And I believe that not because I have, like, some computer put down in neat columns, the pros and cons, the wins and losses, the sometimes nebulous strength of a people under God versus the very visible power of the conspirators who serve Satan. I believe we will win. We can and shall win because there is no alternative. This belief is the assassin of the soul. We need to get a firm grip on faith. In closing, I'd like to tell you a short story about that, partly from the Bible and partly about us. It was near the beginning of his ministry, and the people pressed upon him to hear the words of God. And Jesus saw two boats standing by the lake, and he entered into one of them. It was Simon Peter's boat. And Peter had spent a night of fruitless fishing and was nearby washing his nets. He was tired and discouraged, but there was the Lord in his boat. And he was asking Peter to thrust out a little from the land so he could speak to the crowd assembled on shore. Now, Peter probably thought, why me? Well, why did he get into my boat? Imagine that. Why is it, my friends, that only a few of us really know what's happening to our country? And it seems that we're the only ones who have to work hard for elections we keep losing. And when we'd like to wash our hands of the mess for a little while at least, we're the ones who are called upon to go right on working after every fruitless campaign. So Peter got back into his boat and thrust out again and sat close by the Lord's side so close that the message which warmed the crowd on shore actually burned through to his soul. But when the talk was over, Peter was given his first test. We hear the inspiring words of men like Robert Welch, Tom Anderson, Dan Smoot, and other speakers. But the test of our commitment comes after the speech. Jesus said unto Simon Peter, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draft. Now Simon must have thought again to himself, he was very human. Now all those fine words are just great, but when it comes down to the practical matters like fishing, well, let's be logical about it. We won't catch a thing. I'm a professional fisherman. I know all the places and the ways and the times and the tides, and we're just not going to catch a thing. It's useless to work any longer now. Well, we've been to speeches before, haven't we? We're practically professional speechgoers. We know we won't get the benefit of national coverage. If we haven't won by now, how can we expect to win, especially now? The tide's against us. The time is too short. And we're so tired of coming up empty. But there stood Jesus. And Simon answered, Master, 
We have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. And haven't we worked our hearts out for God, country, and family before, all the way up to today? And where has it gotten us? But there stood Jesus. And Simon said, Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And the Lord gave him fish. So many the net broke. And Simon hollered to another boat, Help, help me, this is a multitude of fish. And the catch was so great, both boats began to sink. And they were astonished and followed him. Yes, we have toiled all the long dark nights. We know better than to fish for victory anymore. Or do we? Our God is still in the business of astonishing people. Maybe we'll go out from here tonight, tired as we are, and launch into the deep and cast out our nets again and let the Lord do the filling. Whether it be for victory or loss, only he knows which it will be. Are we ready to stop second-guessing our Lord? Are we leaning on our own understanding? Are we going to do what's right and do it to the height and breadth and depth and limit of our strength and trust in the Lord for the rest. If we're going to do it, it had better be now. Time is running out. When do we win in Washington and why not? We're going to have to win or else. Let's just stop thinking it's not possible and get on with the job of restoring our God-given republic. Right on. As it says in the book of Proverbs 425, right on before Stokely Carmichael or anybody else thought it up, right on. Let thine eyes look right on. And my friends, I can only tell you that we can win this fight in very simple terms right now by saying it depends on you. It depends on you as an individual to rally together with over 100,000 other individuals who have come together to right a wrong to mankind. I hope you would do as I did some 12 years ago when I took off my rose-colored glasses and I began to face a few realities. I gave up a very lucrative acting career because I looked at my family one day and I thought to myself, my God, my God, what am I doing? No future for them if I don't do something now. You have children. I have children. My son is 26 years old. My daughter is 23. And our God has blessed my wife and myself through our daughter with a very lovely granddaughter named Kimberly, now four years old. And as God is my witness as I stand before you this night, I will do all in my power to see that young Kimberly has the opportunity to live free in a land unfettered by any kind of brutes. I will see to all my power that she doesn't go to a brothel to be used and bruised and torn to pieces by some Asian animal. What are you going to say, ladies and gentlemen? What are you going to say to that little girl who comes up to you someday as they march her away and say, well, what did you do, Mommy? What did you do, Daddy? Are you going to say to her, well, I, I couldn't get involved. 
I mean, it was too controversial. You understand that. I mean, it was bad for business. I, I couldn't get involved with those birchers. Some solace to that little girl. Or even your mother. Or your sister. Or your wife. As they march her away to that brothel. If that's what you're saying to yourself now, you're already behind an iron curtain. And I don't know of anything that will extract you. And you men in this audience, you better start acting like men again. America has a lot of males, very few men. And there's a big difference. A big difference. The women are on the firing lines, gentlemen. They're doing our fighting for us. And the men are hiding behind their aprons, afraid to challenge, afraid to get out and do. Are you femimales, gentlemen? So think about that. And when men start acting like men again, women are going to start acting like women again. And that makes the whole world go round, doesn't it? Yes, just think in our bicentennial year. Where we would be today if 200 years ago there hadn't been somebody thinking about you and me? Where would we be today if they had said no to getting involved? If they had said no, we're too afraid to fight King George, we might be cursing before a king. And in 76, they signed their names to a document, white and pure, and dreamed of the future of men of good faith who would see that work endure. Who were these men who were unafraid to sign security away and bring that English king to his knees on that fateful summer day? Why, they were humble men who believed in God, and to them his wisdom was great. But they also believed in themselves as men and took steps to ensure their fate. They bequeathed to this land their blood and bone and rolled up their sleeves to fight so that future Americans would have a home. They became the warriors of right. From across the sea, other nations watched this young republic stand its ground, and from the din of battle and death, new values of freedom were found. Once again, we are faced with a similar fight against those who would take our land and give us instead a bullet of steel to wipe out the memory of man. But as these patriots did so long ago, to stem the hordes of the king, brave men shall come forth and shout loud and clear, God willing, liberty shall ring. And to the leaders of our day, heed the lesson of history well, for those who don't stand for what's right in this land shall have the hottest spot in hell. So raise your heads high, you Yanks cross this land, and you give her your heart, your head, and your hand. We've got a job to do this year, or freedom forever will disappear. We trounced the British in 76, a task not easy to do, but we've got the stop to do it again, to the Reds and Socialists too. And we will do it if you decide to take your stand and come and join in this fight right now, this mad race. Come and join the John Burt Society. We need you, you need us, and the country needs us both working together while praying to God at the same time. And if you decide to join the John Burt Society tonight, I would find it an honor, and I would be very privileged and feel that privilege if you'll let me sign that application for you myself before I leave. I may never pass this way again. Come with us, my friends. Become a member of an organization that's trying to right a wrong to mankind. Become a member of an organization that Robert Welch says of us 
is the greatest body of men and women on this earth. Thank you very much. I'll be back shortly. Yes,